Welcome to Let's Talk Diabetes, a podcast from Diabetes UK in Northern Ireland. Throughout this series, we'll be chatting everything diabetes with healthcare professionals, people from the Diabetes UK team and people living with diabetes in Northern Ireland. Today, we're joined again by Mark Davies. Mark is a consultant clinical psychologist working in Belfast City Hospital here in Belfast. I'm your host, Susie Hull, Healthcare Engagement Manager at Diabetes UK in Northern Ireland. Mark, thanks for coming back to talk to me. We'll be continuing our conversation on emotional well-being and resilience when living with diabetes, but we'll be focusing on people living with type 2 diabetes this time. There can be similarities, as we've mentioned before, but also a lot of differences between type 1 and type 2, and we've decided to talk about them separately because of this, and also maybe just to recognise that type 1 and type 2 are the two main types. There are others within that, but we're choosing to pick these two out. What maybe is the main or the emotional impact just generally of being diagnosed with diabetes and type 2 diabetes in particular? Well, I suppose when speaking to people with type 2 diabetes who are newly diagnosed, uh, I think there are two issues uh, that tend to come out. One is the uh, treatment of type 2 diabetes often involves people having to do things they don't want to do. Okay. Having to change their eating behaviour, having to exercise, having to give up the fags and having and, and stopping doing things that they get a lot of lifestyle changes a lot of lifestyle changes and that's that can be that can be tricky for people the other thing is um the fear of complications and worrying okay. about complications in the future so i suppose they're the two issues that come to mind and are those different from the consideration from type one well i think there are similarities between type one and type two but there may be a more significant or drastic change for somebody with type two i think with people with type two people are very aware of what they've been asked to do um, I remember when I first started working in Northern Ireland, I did a big talk. Uh, it was in Carrick, actually, a big hotel in Carrick, and there were 200 primary care healthcare professionals in the audience, and I was on after lunch, so they're all a bit sleepy. <laughs> so I got them to stand up, and I said, right, everybody who's had too many units of alcohol in the last week, sit down. That was all the GPs. Sit down. <laughs> Everyone who's had a cigarette in the last week, sit down. That was all the nurses. Everyone who hasn't had three um, periods of rigorous exercise sit down everyone who hasn't had five portions of fruit and vegetables sit down so there was I think it was 220 healthcare professionals in the room and how many were left standing after that I'm going to presume probably none there were eight in fairness so it's worth considering you know these messages we give to people do we do them ourselves and if not why not why don't we do these things I think the reason we don't do these things is is that we perceive them as a reduction in quality of life and if you're used to doing them, they're not easy to give up necessarily. They're part of our behavioural repertoire, they're part of our lives, they're part of our pleasures. It's what we do. It makes our lives happier. So asking people to give up or change or alter those ideas is, is not easy. And I kind of think of it as a sort of seesaw. On the one hand, healthcare professionals, I suppose we're driven by people living long and healthy lives. Essentially, we're driven by quantity of life. Yeah. So we put pressure on the quantity of life side of the seesaw, whereas people with type 2 diabetes put pressure on the quality of life side of the seesaw. And yeah. getting that balance right is one of the big challenges of living with type 2 diabetes. And I suppose then an understanding on the healthcare professional side then of what you're asking somebody to do and expectation almost of what comes out of whatever you're asking them to change but then understanding on the person living with diabetes or just being diagnosed that there may be a lot of changes that can come with time we previously have heard from Heather the GP in our first podcast that time is a big thing that you have with type 2 diabetes you have time to change things to develop treatment plans there's a lot more 
time that can be put to that. So actually an expectation or understanding that we do this over time. Yeah, I think gradual change is easier than than radical change. Um, And we kind of know that if people make some quite small changes, you can get quite a big benefit from that. So it's coming up with changes with ideas that are both manageable and can be, as you say, rolled out, gradually introduced to somebody's life over time. It's a helpful idea. Well, because there's impacts to all of those things that you change. We mentioned diet, exercise, you mentioned smoking. There are impacts to each and every one of those for somebody. And you said that is what quite often makes us happy in life. You know, one person's happy is going out for a 10 mile run. It's not mine. No point out. <laughs> it's not mine going out for a 10 mile run. But another person's is a bar of chocolate in the evenings or after lunch. And another person's is going out for a couple of cigarettes a day. Mm-hmm. And you're taking an element of that away and that has an impact. And it's a difficult message, isn't it? The idea is if you make some of these changes now, you won't suddenly win a prize. The, the idea of doing this is that it will make your future years better. So it's a bit like saving for a pension. You will, uh, if you make some changes now, it'll make your 60s or your 70s better and easier. And we, as human beings, you and I, sometimes will prioritise the immediate over the uh, distal, as psychologists say, or the distant uh, future. So, yeah, these ideas aren't unusual to us. We understand these as human beings, why looking after type 2 diabetes can be difficult and why some of the treatment advice that people get with type 2 diabetes get uh, can be difficult for them. And I suppose then probably to recognise as well that for type 2 diabetes, it's not always the case, but generally you're diagnosed later on in life. So you are into maybe 40s, 50s, 60s before Mm -hmm. you get a diagnosis. A lot of those habits are well ingrained into your life. They're a way that you have lived for the last four decades, five decades of life and they're hard to change. It's interesting. I have seen people make quite radical changes to well-learned behaviours quite quickly. It varies from people's personalities. So um, I'm I'm reluctant to generalise, but having said that, yeah, it's harder to change well-learned behaviours than uh, than not. Uh, but I have seen people make, you know, quite significant changes to their life. And actually they've said, after I've made these changes, I actually feel better. My quality of life's actually increased. So if healthcare professionals can be mindful that the message they're giving is perceived as a reduction in quality of life, but it needn't be a reduction in quality of yeah. life. People living better, feeling healthier actually makes them feel better. So for you working in, you obviously work in diabetes services within the emotional wellbeing and psychology aspect of things. Do you see people living with type 2 in your services? Is that the hardest thing that they experience, living with type 2, is those lifestyle changes? No, there's a number of, there's a number of issues. One is fear. So people can be very scared uh, when they get diagnosed with diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetes. They can be very fearful of complications. And it's important that people have an accurate perception of threat. Okay. How scared should I be of this? If people aren't scared enough, it's probably not helpful in terms of motivating to change. But equally, if people are too scared, it's unhelpful. Because if we're too scared, we can freeze. And interestingly, there are two groups of people who are more likely to be too scared when they're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And what are those? People with a family history. Okay. People who remember granny or granddad. Who uh, had this, that or whatever that was a complication. Back in the 1980s or the 1970s or the 1990s when it was people didn't really get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes until the gangrene is set in. Yep, there was a significant complication and that's how it was found out. So a generation later or two think, oh my gosh, I've got type 2 diabetes now, it's going to be exactly the same been diagnosed and living with type 2 diabetes is much much easier now than than it once was 
and people get diagnosed a lot earlier in their yep. diabetes career uh, than they did uh, And a lot different ago. treatment methods from that point then too. So sometimes I kind of try and help people to be a little bit more scared of diabetes and sometimes I try and help people to be a little less scared of diabetes. But there's another group of people who are very prone to being over-frightened when they're diagnosed. And they are? Healthcare professionals. Uh, just those that work in diabetes care or all healthcare professionals? If you've worked in A&E or if you worked in ICU or if you've worked in a hospital, you will have you seen see a lot of the, the sticky end of diabetes. Yeah. So chances are you won't meet many people if you work in a hospital who've got well-controlled diabetes, but you'll meet lots of people who've got poorly controlled diabetes. So as a healthcare professional, when, when you get your diagnosis, you have a whole history of memories. Of knowing the, the really negative end of yeah. things. You have a skewed view of what type 2 diabetes is. And you can understand that even in that relation to the people who are overscared from previous family experience or whatever. Because So I have family members who have either well managed or not well managed their condition. And there is a sense of, well, I know I have a risk and I know that that could happen, but it's managing that fear around it. And actually that makes sense for a healthcare professional who has lived and breathed the complications for X number of years in services. Almost a sense of overwhelming, nearly. The, me- the message I generally give people is something along the lines of, it is important to be a little bit scared of type 2 diabetes yeah. and the potential complications, but don't be too scared. But there's another thing that people need to think about when it comes to type 2 diabetes and fear as well, and that is perceived control. How much control do I have over my type 2 diabetes? And lots of people who get frightened about type 2 diabetes underestimate how much control they have over type 2 diabetes. So some people will be very, very scared of the potential of of complications and have a sense that they don't really have any control over their type 2 diabetes. Okay. So it's very, very important to get the message across to people that type 2 diabetes is really controllable. Okay. With the medications that are available, with the lifestyle changes that are suggested for some people with insulin, type 2 diabetes is one of those problems in life that you have control over. So perceived control is really, really important. And we know from research that that's one of the predictors of whether somebody uh, adjusts to living with type 2 diabetes. It's how much of a sense of control they're feeling. The greater the sense of control they have, the more likely they're able to live with type 2 diabetes and manage it well. And I suppose that's where, because for anybody who listened to the last episode, we did speak a little bit about perceived control and some similarities maybe there for people living type 1 but from a different perspective nearly so for type 1 diabetes if you overestimate how much control you have over your capillary blood glucose it's not helpful yeah in type 2 diabetes if you underestimate how much control you have over your over your condition unhelpful yeah so some people will get frightened and feel powerless when they're diagnosed and some people will use the word shock when they're diagnosed and sometimes people will go into a state of denial yeah when they're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes um, because perhaps they're too frightened, perhaps sometimes because they feel ashamed, that they have believed they've brought their condition on and that sense of shame is too great and they can't process it and it makes it hard for them to accept their condition. Because we've talked about that previously and that you know, type 1, the causation of it and stuff, is absolutely nothing to do with the individual. Type 2, there is a difference there. There is some lifestyle elements that may develop into type 2 diabetes and there may be some causation there. That doesn't really fault, so it doesn't, but it just means that there may have been elements of your lifestyle that have led to this. But it's about changing some of them then too. Hmm? So when people experience a shock 
there's a question, uh, a short question that people will often ask. It's the victim's question, and it's, why me? Why did this happen to me? So if you've experienced a crime or if you've experienced um, an accident, there's very often somebody you can blame. Yep. It's often a perpetrator. When people are and diagnosed... And that gives you a sense of understanding nearly or reasoning behind something happening. It gives you somebody to be angry with as yeah. well. You know, it's a secret. If there's somebody at fault. And justice to be done and so on and so forth. But when you get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and you ask the why me question, who do you blame? We automatically start coming back to yourself, I and presume. You become the perpetrator of diabetes rather than the victim of diabetes. So when people get stuck on the why me question, I will often say to them, look, the why me question's in the past. There's a more important question than why me, and that is, what am I going to do about this? Because it's still you that has the choices going forward from that point. Yeah. And how do you, so if somebody's coming with that, why me and you manage to get into that then well, how do we change this going forward how do you support somebody to do that how do you within your practice well, how I, do you go about that the, the, I mean the key thing is to build a, a, a relationship with somebody build a safe relationship with somebody where they feel respected uh, where they feel you're empathic and where, you, where they feel you're authentic as a person and I suppose maybe the word judgment to throw in there as well. You are not judging them because I think there's a lot of feeling like you're being judged, that it's your fault, that it's your... You're absolutely right, Susie. It's so important to be non-judgmental. Unconditionally positive regard, as we call it in, in, in our in our language. But yeah, non-judgmental. Because they're already judging themselves, potentially. Correct. Correct. And I will sometimes say to people, you know, um, there's two people sitting in this room and there's only one person judging you and it's not me sometimes people maybe don't consider the fact that they've judged themselves for it and it's about that reframing or rethinking around how you approach your condition because that's then starting your understanding and your management and we've used the word control before but that's starting that process then it makes us think about how we parent ourselves how we look after ourselves and if we're going to look after ourselves and parent ourselves it's very important that we're compassionate to, to ourselves it's very important that we treat ourselves with compassion and empathy so I will often say to people try and be a compassionate parent yeah. rather than a critical cruel parent and the th- just very simply we've heard before but just being kind to yourself just being kind to yourself I mean, you know it's yeah. the first person to be kind to because if you can't do it for yourself then it's very a struggle important, very important it's a simple idea a very powerful idea though so Going back then, we obviously we talked about like lifestyle changes and their diet, exercise, smoking, other behaviours maybe that are changed and have an impact on life. How do you support somebody through that if they're challenged with some of that? Is are there ways to support that in services? Well, one of one of the things that psychology teaches us is that once our brain learns to do something, we can't unlearn it. We can't unlearn how to drive or how to swim or how to ride a bike. So once we learn how to do something, it's very difficult to stop doing it. So if somebody uses food as a way of self-soothing, for example, which is very common, once the brain has learned to do that, you can't kind of say to somebody, don't do it anymore. I have never thought about it like that because you're right. If you told me to unlearn how to drive, I I couldn't do it. I, I know it. Yeah. So actually, yeah. And if I tell you not to do something, if I tell you don't think the about first thing I want to do, don't think about pink elephant, Susie. <laughs> Automatically, there's a pink. Stop it. There is a pink elephant in my brain. <laughs> so one of the things we know in psychology is that trying not to do things is counterproductive. Yeah. So what you've got to do is learn to do something else instead. Okay. So the only way not to think about pink elephants is to think about blue horses. Okay. So if you know that eating is a good way of soothing, 
and you kind of know that's starting to be a little bit of a problem, you've got to find another way of soothing. And how do you how do you get to find what that other thing is? Is there I'm going to say an easy way. I, don't think, I think I know the answer to that. Get, <laughs> but you, you are get, there ways? You get to know the person and you get to know that there are so many different ways of people will, people are so creative and surprising sometimes. I remember talking to a lady years and years and years ago about what she might do whenever she got angry and she had plenty of reasons to be angry in her life. She, she would turn to food and that was really yeah. unhelpful for a type 2 diabetes. She was probably in her late 50s um, lived in a very working class area of Belfast. She was absolute salt of the earth. And uh, she came in one day after we'd been talking about what you're going to do instead. And she said, I've started boxing. Oh. <laughs> she started going to a boxing <laughs> class. And I, you know, I, I would never have thought that would work for her. It really, really worked for her. The one most healthcare professionals think, when I first started working in the hospital, used to do, we used to call binge eating groups. People used to compulsively binge eat. And at the beginning, we used to do the A to Z game. So everybody in the group say, right, give me a reason beginning with A uh, that you eat anger, B, boredom, C, comfort, yeah. D, depression, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, By the time you get to Z, I feel like that's a hard one to get to. Or do you get to Z? I can't remember what X and Z was. I think X was ex-husband, but... <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what Z was. Can attest to that, but possibly eat because of that (laughs) ex-husband. So the thing that most healthcare professionals will think of immediately is a good way of dealing with anger and a good way of dealing with boredom and a good way of dealing is exercise. So that's a kind of good default position. You know, that exercise is a really good way of... um, uh, Because there's that release of endorphins and there is a struggle sometimes with exercise because you feel so unmotivated to go and do it. But exercise reframing that slightly exercise is just moving more exactly and so it is yeah, exercise yeah, does going, not mean it's going for a walk it's not a marathon yeah, all the time going for a it's walk, not walking the dog but i mean it's not my job to prescribe what the, what that is the other behavior is it's for people to find it for themselves but that is about the conversation around and understanding their life correct. understanding what's in their life or not correct and i suppose for some people looking at that is there a comfort in it being something you already do or is it trying new thing? It varies from person to person. Some people go back to stuff that they used to do. Uh, some people do new stuff. It varies from person to person. I think it's the, the other thing, just thinking about getting to know the person, it's just not about their life in the present. Um, when people are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, they will, they will often talk about a shock. Uh, it's been a shock to the system. It's been a shock to me. And sometimes the word psychologists use for shock is trauma. When, when the trauma of a diagnosis happens, it can remind people of previous traumas. It can remind people of when they felt scared and helpless. They can remind people of when they felt something horrible was happening to the body and it vaguely felt like it was their fault. So I would work a lot with people, not so much about the diagnosis of diabetes, but what the diagnosis of diabetes reminds them of, whether that's troubles trauma or abuse trauma or periods in their lives when they've had a lot of upheaval. That can be re-evoked well, and reawakened by a diagnosis. And they have to process the primary trauma before they can diagnose yeah. the, the secondary because trauma. Because as you mentioned, there's a lot of those learned things that you maybe have done at some point. And those automatically feed into that new trauma and you learn to respond to that in a certain way. You eat, you do whatever. So actually it's dealing with some of the other things in life. Maybe. A generation ago, uh, a lot of people dealt with trauma not by talking about it. Yep. They would drink it or they yep. would keep it to themselves. Um, and of course, when they have a trauma in their 50s and 60s, as you say, when they get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, the temptation is to repeat that pattern. Yep. Um, so helping people... 
process the original trauma and yep. think about dealing with tra- this trauma differently. That's important. It's helpful yeah. and yeah. useful. But we've focused a wee bit there on the kind of that newly diagnosed, being shocked, it being a traumatic experience potentially. Do you see many people who are past that newly diagnosed point, and I'm not going to put a time scale on what no. that is, but people who have maybe been living for years with type 2 diabetes, do you see people years into their condition? Well, sometimes I'll see people, uh, there, there are different points in the type 2 journey, if you want to call it that, that people can get distressed so for example at the onset of complications so people have lived with type 2 diabetes for a number of years and perhaps haven't looked after it as well as uh, they might and then they began to have problems with their feet with neuropathy or with their kidneys um, or they're having cardiovascular problems and then we do have lots of conversations about regret okay uh, um, and how people wish they had looked after their diabetes better and one of the ideas Again, one of the things that my job has taught me is just how quickly time passes. People um, imagine that complications will happen in the long, distant future. What is that saying? Kind of a day feels like a year and a year feels like a day kind of thing. Once you get to 10 years down the line, it has felt like a blink of an eye. You think of all the things that have happened to us, COVID in the last three years and four years. and... And we look now and think, where did those three years go? the future happens very quickly yeah. and the future rushes up on us as we get older and, and a, a lot of people I see later on with type 2 diabetes are so regretful that they didn't look after the, the, their type 2 diabetes didn't invest in their health when they were diagnosed and this bit, there's learning there of potentially for people earlier in their diagnosis that people later in diagnosis can feel like that but what do you do with that individual who is feeling regret at maybe because there are things that maybe can't be changed at that point and it's all right to say I should have or could have or would have done this but we're not at that point and it's about that moment. How do you work with that or how do you deal with that or how does that person deal with that? Mm. Again, it's a human experience, isn't it? We all have regrets. We all have things in our lives that we wish we'd done differently uh, and how we make peace with those things varies from person to person. But to make the best of the situation they're in, um, yeah, you, you do have to make peace with past regrets. Okay. And I suppose we've talked previously in our last session about relationships in people's life too. And I suppose probably to touch on that a little bit, don't kind of look at our relationships as support important the same as it is with type 1. What does that look like or how can people have that in their lives? How can people use that? So... There's lots of ways of thinking about that. We can think about that uh, in terms of compassion and understanding. One of the pieces of research myself and Emma Berry from Queen's University did was looking at the beliefs people have about type 2 diabetes in couples. Okay, so your spouse. Your spouse, yeah, your life partner. And we were looking at what happens if one person in the partnership, maybe the person with diabetes, has uh, a certain set of beliefs. But their life partner has a different set of beliefs. Mm -hmm. So there's incongruity in beliefs within the partnership. And that's really, really unhelpful. Because it's unhelpful in a lot of areas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Probably people Mm -hmm. would understand that when you have different opinions Uh and different views, that can create chaos sometimes. But implication is 
that we sometimes think about giving people with diabetes information about their condition, but mm -hmm. we don't consider their the life people partners, around them. the people around them. And we kind of know research tells us it's really helpful if everybody has the same understanding of what type of diabetes is, how scared you should be, how much control you have, what you need to do. So we sometimes think about educating individuals and, and giving information to individuals, but I think we should think a little bit more about the people around those individuals. And have you any thoughts, Kerner? Because obviously that's research that maybe has been done to say it's been done this in it's been done are. in Italy. Yeah, it's been done in Italy. I, I'm always looking to uh, make nice research connections with people in nice countries. Yeah, uh, that you get to then visit. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, there's been a lot of research in Italy where they kind of they educate the family and not just the individual, and the benefit of that has been shown. And has it been shown maybe how that is most useful? how the information is given to people is it given within the same appointments is it given yeah people are brought in together yeah people, yeah people all go families all go to education together and life partners go to education with with the person with diabetes and, and share appointments and so we on, have so education programs here for people living with diabetes who've been diagnosed they can access those different points within it's, their journey if you get good education it'll help you answer those questions yeah how scared should i be how much control do i have because it shows what you the likelihood of things and the chances of sort of the how it happens, when it happens, and what you need to do. But those questions are also important for the person who loves the person with diabetes. Yeah. How scared should I be? How much control does do yeah. we have over this? What do we what needs to be done? Well, because if you're the person that does the practical things in the house, like cooking the dinner, you need to understand the impacts of a lifestyle change to that person. You need to understand why they're doing that. I, and what I, it means. I, I fear we're wandering into uh, <laughs> social stereotypes here and I'm a 54 year old man so I'm going to be cautious oh, no, I, did, I didn't say whether it was woman or man cooking the dinner exactly, exactly. <laughs> but yes uh, very often in families there because be it's a lifestyle yeah, yeah. and they are part of your lifestyle to consider Correct. Mark we're kind of coming to the end of things so we are so maybe we've done this before Give us one piece of advice or one top tip for somebody living with type 2 diabetes in managing their well-being associated with that. If you've just been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, be a little bit scared of type 2 diabetes, but not overly scared. Be respectful of uh, the potential for complications. Uh, Recognise that you have a lot of control over this condition. And if your diagnosis reminds you of something from your past, talk to somebody about it. And I suppose that's a big message maybe across all of them is talk to somebody to understand how scared or not scared to be. Inform yourself. Don't keep it inside. No. Mark, thanks for coming back to chat to me. Again, it's been lovely again to continue the conversation and explore it more from a type 2 perspective. You'll be joining us again for a final session to talk about how healthcare professionals can support people and their emotional well-being during the diabetes journey. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Let's Talk Diabetes. Remember to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you want to hear more from Diabetes UK Northern Ireland, follow us on social media at Diabetes UK NI.